Hey, thanks for tuning in. The audio presented to you is copyrighted by Oak Ridge Baptist Church. Today is Memorial Day. And it's important as we come together this morning that we remember why we have a three-day weekend. Um, Memorial Day itself began in a very powerful way right after the Civil War. In 1865, there were a group of newly freed slaves in the city of Charleston, South Carolina, that gathered together and went down to the Hampton Race Park. Now, the Hampton Racing Park was a, uh, was a horse racing field that had been used by the Confederate Army as an open-air prisoner of war camp. And prisoner of war camps during the Civil War in the South were brutal. As the South lost more and more territory and were disconnected from their, um, from their transportation lines and as, as food dwindled in the South, the people at the bottom of the rung of society were the ones that suffered the most. And those were the slaves, and those were Union prisoners. And so when you see pictures of Union soldiers in prisoner of war camps, they're very similar to um, pictures of prisoners that came out of the concentration camps. These were men that were starving to death. Um, and so this group of newly freed slaves went to this mass grave that had been dug where the bodies of 200 Union soldiers had been thrown in it, and they, decorate the gra- they decorated the grave. And they made speeches, and they remembered these men who had died, many of whom were part of the African-American battalions that had tried to seize Battery Wagner. If you've ever seen the movie Glory, those were the guys that were buried in that pit. So these men went, these, uh, these church leaders and family members went down to that graveyard, and, and they began to just place decorations on the graves. And then this became a tradition. And then this tradition began to spread to other places around the country where at a particular time on a particular day, men and women would remember those soldiers who had died in the service of the nation. And so it's fitting and important for us to remember these men who died, men and women who died in the service of our country. But I, but I think it's even more poignant this morning as we talk about a celebration that came from really one of the greatest wars in American history, the, especially when we talk about loss of life, that our passage this morning addresses the issue that caused that war. See, as we've gone through the book of 1 Peter, we have been examining how Christians are to live in a world that hates them. How we're supposed to live well among people that treat us poorly. The section that we are in right now in 1 Peter chapter 2, we've even kind of grouped together as a little mini-series within a series 
We, as we asked the question, how do we live well in a dying age? Last week we talked about how to live well when the government hates you. How to live well when, when Caesar is a jerk and doesn't treat you right. Peter talked about what that looked like and how we could submit to the authority of a government, even an evil government, in such a way that we brought glory to our Father in heaven. I had a lot of really good questions that came out of that sermon series. Lots of people stopped me in the hallway and asked, well, what about this, Pastor? What about that, Pastor? I think it kind of stuck, struck a nerve, and I have a feeling that this one will as well. Because, see, our passage this morning is going to address another area where God's people can endure suffering. We're going to examine how Christians should respond to oppression and exploitation. We're going to seek to answer the question, how can a Christian live well when their boss isn't good? Before we do that, though, we have to go back to what I think is the operative passage in this entire section. It's a passage that we, we've been talking about several weeks in a row now. It's 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. I'm going to read them to you. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. See, this section of the book of 1 Peter is very, very practical. It has a tremendous amount of practical information that deals with how we should engage in troubling situations. We looked at how we should deal with the government. We're going to look at how we should deal in issues of, of service and employment. And later on, we're going to look at how we should deal with our marriages. But before we go through any of those things, the basis of all of these things is a Christian urge, a Christian command to get our passions under control. See, we cannot begin to do the business of glorifying God if we are still being ruled by the passions of this world. We cannot begin to glorify God until we get our passions under control. Why is this? Well, because so often when we're dealing with jerky people, the problem is that they make us mad. They make us mad, and it makes us lash out in aggressive ways. And so Peter is referring his, to his readers as exiles and sojourners in the communities that they're living, and he's reminding them, you don't belong here. These are not your people. Their priorities are not your priorities. What they do is not what you're supposed to do. You're going to be different. It's going to feel weird. Get used to that. 
And so he uses this term, sojourners, that connects God's people to the history of Israel's sojourning. See, Israel was a nation that generally didn't get along with the people around them. And so we have all of these examples throughout the Old Testament where Israel is living among people that have conquered them or enslaved them. Israel lived as slaves and sojourners in Egypt for 400 years. Israel was constantly fighting wars with the people around them and being taken off into captivity or taken off into slavery. Over and over and over again, God's people get dragged out and placed into the outside world. Now part of this is because they were stupid and continued to rebel against the God that loved them. But part of this was also part of God's plan. By the time that Jesus had come into the world, the Mediterranean basin and much of the east was seeded with little pockets of Jewish people. Little communities that had over the centuries and millennia become hardened to the cultures of the people around them. This, this is in many ways what it means to be Jewish, to be the odd man out, to be a community set apart. You can see this if you ever go to Europe. Almost every city that has any kind of ancient or old town will have an area set aside for the Jews called the ghetto. That's where the term came from. It was a place where the Jews lived all by themselves, sometimes willingly, sometimes not willingly. There were certain jobs that only Jews could do, certain foods that Jews wouldn't eat. They were a people apart. And because of that cultural identity, they were able to preserve the knowledge of God in places that had never heard of Him. And so when Christianity began to spread throughout the world after Christ died, every place that Christian missionaries went, they found a pocket of Jews that served as the nucleus of a new church. It's almost like God planned that. It's super weird. Okay? Now, Peter is speaking to a community that is like that. This is a community of new Christians, Gentile Christians, that have been kind of grafted into a group of Jewish Christians and created this weird, odd couple church that everybody hates. And so he's trying to talk to them about what it means to be sojourners, to live as aliens among people that used to be your family. See, if Christians are living the way that they're supposed to live, it's going to make them strange and maybe even a little bit sinister. If you read contemporary Roman discussions of Christians, so this is Romans talking about Christians in the first century after Christ died, they almost universally don't get them. And they think kind of weird things about Christians like, I don't know, these guys are strange. They go down into the catacombs and have love feasts. You know what that is. And then they eat flesh and drink blood. 
And they don't like the gods, and they don't associate with people around them, and there's certain foods that they won't eat. They're weirdos. And you know what we do with weirdos? We drive them out. So Peter knows that his people are going to be treated differently, that they're going to be strange. And yet he also wants his people to act in a particular way. Peter tells them that they are supposed to act, and the word that he uses, anastrophen kalen. And anastrophe is the way that you conduct yourself. It's your attitude, it's your actions, it's your, it's your character. It is the way that you act when people are looking and the, people that, and the way that you act when no one's looking. He's saying that character that you have with the people around you should be good and honorable. It re- should reflect the glory of the God that saved you and made you. He wants them to be good and honorable people. Not because he's a self-help guru and he wants them to live their best life. Over and over again, he's going to tell them, I want you to live well among the pagans so that you bring glory to God. Every single Christian and every single community is an ambassador of the God that made them and saved them. And that means that we don't get to do our own thing or go our own way. One of the hardest jobs in the U.S. military, in the U.S. Marine Corps, is embassy duty. It's great and also really, really hard. It's great because you get to go to really cool places, and most of the time what you're doing is like eating local food and lifting weights and looking cool. But every now and then, you get duty in a bad place, like Yemen or Karachi, some place where the people hate America. And then the job becomes incredibly difficult because you cannot act on your passions. When a huge mob of people are spitting in your face and throwing bricks at you, you can't use the machine gun that the US government gave you to act out your passions. There's a fantastic movie that describes this. If anybody's ever seen the movie Courage Under Fire, no, not Courage Under Fire, um, what? No, not The Saint. (laughs) The movie is Courage Under Fire, and it's about a Marine unit that is in Yemen, and they come under attack by a crowd, and Samuel L. Jackson, who is a Vietnam veteran, or playing a Vietnam veteran, is the guy that's in charge, and they've evacuated the group, and, and he's under fire, and his guys are getting hurt, and, and everything's going chaotically, and he orders his men to shoot into the crowd. And it has, it, and there is catharsis in that. <laughs> And you see these guys who've been pinned down with raining bricks and had mean things said to them, get up. There's this scene where the guy takes his, his 240 machine gun and throws it up over the parapet and just, rah, just starts slaying people down. In the, and it's all very heroic and cool until you begin to see the images of the civilians being shot. And you see what happens when our passions take control. You see what happens Those people are now no longer able to represent the United States well because they have allowed their passions to control the things that they're doing. And so 
Peter wants his listeners to understand that their conduct will reflect God. This is incredibly important to us because we live in a time, in a place that idolizes rebellion. If you look at the heroes that we lift up, they are heroes of rebellion. The iconoclastic teenager with his skateboard or her skateboard, just whatever, sticking it to the man, going their own way, doing their own thing. Now, there's nothing wrong with skateboarding. I can't skateboard, but that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. But what is problematic is what happens when we build a culture around transgressing every value and every culture. There is a whole section at Target now about transgressing what is normal, about going beyond and outside of what is expected. When you elevate those things, when you worship those things, civilization melts around you and everything dissolves. So as Christians, we have to be careful that we do not embrace that aspect of our culture. You see this with Christian pastors sometimes. See, you get lots of likes on Instagram when you're edgy. Come on. I got a little taste of that this week. See, we've started to go through and make little Instagram reels of the things that I say. And we put it on Instagram, we put it on Facebook, and I got a troll I got somebody on Facebook that said that I was hashtag fake news. I know, right? I was hashtag fake news. And, and you know what? That was one of the most widely circulated reels that we had. Because you know what sells? Division. Division sells. Being mean sells. No, I wasn't divisive or mean in the things that I said. I think the guy's crazy, but that's, not here. that's neither here nor there. The point is that some pastors look at that and they're like, you know what I need to do? I need to be more transgressive. I, I need to be more vicious. I need to be more edgy because that way I get more likes and I get more views. Now listen, as Christians, there are things that we're going to say that are deeply offensive to the people around us. You're a sinner, and sinners go to hell. That's offensive. I'm not telling you to go to hell, but I'm saying that if you're a sinner and you haven't been saved, you're going to go to hell. That's offensive. There's only two genders. That's offensive. You can't have sex outside of marriage. That's offensive. These are all offensive things that fly in the face of our culture. We're going to say these things and we're going to offend people. But we don't need to be needlessly offensive so that we can get likes and clicks. But if we submit to the passions of the world around us, we will. Now, how does this apply to the passage from this morning? There is no place where your passions will get you more in trouble than when you're dealing with a difficult boss. I want you to think about it. I want you to think about some of the bosses that you've had, some of the people that have held authority over your lives. Some of them have probably been really, really good. 
Some of them, though, some of them haven't been. And if your heart isn't right, if your mind isn't in the right place, your passions will cause you to do things that do not bring God glory. Here's an example. When I was in college, I was in the Corps of Cadets at Texas A&M. Submission to authority is a critical component of being in the Corps of Cadets at Texas A&M. As an 18-year-old man, I chafed under authority and became very, very angry. And on one occasion, or multiple occasions, I lashed out at authority in violent ways. One time, I went into a guy's room, dumped trash all over it, because I was rebelling against authority and thought myself quite the rebel. Sometimes we would be a little bit more passive-aggressive. We would have to wax the floors. So sometimes, we would wax the floors extra special well in front of the doors of the upperclassmen we didn't really like, so that when they came out, they would slip and fall. It is funny, but not right. My passions got a hold of me. So what does Peter say? Well, in verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Then he goes and talks about government. Then he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures suffer, sorrows while suffering unjustly. Peter is telling his readers that right living manifests as godly submission to earthly authority. He's talked about the emperor, and now he's going to take another very salient example for him. And that's the issue of slavery. Make no mistake, Peter is using the word oiketes, which means a bondservant or slave. This is someone who is owned by somebody else. Sometimes as Christians, we try to soften this, we try to dance around it, we try to say, well, no, it's really, it's more like, no, it's not, it's a slave. There is nothing good about the condition of the person that he's talking about. They are owned by somebody else. Now, in the ancient world, people became slaves in different ways. They became slaves by being captured in war, by being kidnapped or born into slave households. Sometimes people being, that, that were enduring hardship, they didn't have bankruptcy laws, so maybe you, you wrote a bunch of hot checks or got super in debt, and once you sold everything you owned, the only other thing you could sell was your labor and yourself. So families would sell family members into slavery. Sometimes the entire family would go into slavery. And when they did, they lost all their freedom and indeed their futures. And so right off the bat, this leads us into an incredibly dangerous minefield. A very dangerous and disturbing place because Paul, or Peter, I'm sorry, seems to be condoning the institution of slavery. And we need to understand is that what Peter is saying is said many other places in Scripture. What he says is said in many other places in Scripture, namely that slaves should submit to their masters. 
We see this in Ephesians 6, 5. We see it in Colossians 3. We see it in 1 Timothy 6. We see it in Titus. We can also see this in the entire book of Philemon, which is a letter that Paul writes to a Christian slave owner on behalf of one of his slaves that has run away. So what on earth are we supposed to do with this? This has led some people, including some prominent American theologians during the Civil War, to argue that the Bible promotes or at least condones tacitly slavery. After all, if slavery was so wrong, wouldn't have Paul and Peter have condemned it? This is, in fact, one of the great attacks that's leveled against Christianity, that we are the religion of the slave owner. But there is something else that is going on here, something that we need to understand. The writers of the New Testament were not social revolutionaries. They were not writing a treatise on political science. They were members of a hated minority building churches that were composed mostly of slaves. Understand that. When, we, when Christianity came onto the scene in the ancient Mediterranean world, we weren't getting the best and the brightest. It was not a rich people's religion. It was not the religion of the well-heeled middle class or the respectable. This was the religion that the lowest, the last, and the least turned to because it provided hope for those who had no hope. And so Peter is a man who is in jail facing a death sentence speaking to a church filled with people that deal with this problem on a daily basis. Living in one of the most brutal empires the world has ever seen. You know what happened the last time that slaves rose up in the Roman Empire? It was 75 BC. They called it the Third, the third Servile War. 150,000 slaves rose up against the Romans under Spartacus. And while Spartacus is a great movie, the reality was brutal. The Roman Empire basically stopped everything, raised a huge army, crushed them all, and crucified 11,000 slaves. They crucified so many slaves that you could stretch them all the way from Capua to Rome along the Via Ignatia. And they left their bodies there for decades to rot. There was literally no scenario where a slave that Peter was writing to was going to somehow rise up and cast off the Roman yoke. The New Testament writers were not civil revolutionaries. They were writing for a different reason. Sometimes we look at this too and we're like, well, at least you could have be in favor of civil disobedience. After all, we've seen throughout history that civil disobedience leads to change in a society. Think about Martin Luther King and Gandhi. Do what they did. Gandhi freed all of India with civil disobedience. But there's a thing. Civil disobedience only works if the people that are in charge of the government are Christians. 
and know deep down that what they're doing is wrong. You know where civil disobedience didn't work? In the killing fields in Cambodia. You know where else it didn't work? In Tiananmen Square. Anybody ever see that picture? The guy doing civil disobedience in front of the tank? You know what happened to him? He had a bad day. Civil disobedience does not work where there is no ability for outside pressure and the people in charge don't care. So civil disobedience didn't work in Ukraine when Stalin killed a bunch of people. It didn't work in China. And it wouldn't have worked in the Roman Empire for a people that had zero problem killing innocents. And so the early church leaders did not believe that overhauling social structures would transform culture. Their concern was the relationship of individuals to God, and they focused on the sin and rebellion of individuals against their creators. That was their focus. The immortal soul of the person that was being addressed. The Bible clearly teaches two critical truths that ultimately would upend all of slavery. See, the Bible is anti-slavery, but it fights against slavery by changing the culture that makes slave-owning possible, by introducing two incredibly radical ideas. See, for us now, we, we kind of have this, this temporal conceit. We can look back on it from the 21st century and be like, oh, how could anyone do that? Hold slaves. I would not have been a slave owner. In Rome, I'm so much better than them because I have hindsight. And yet if you think about the fact that slavery was the near universal condition of every culture that had ever been, you would be hard-pressed to find a large-scale major civilization that did not have slavery. It was normal for people to own other people. And then God comes and begins to change the heart of men. He does it with two really important ideas. The universal brotherhood of mankind. The fact that whether a person was slave or free, Greek, pagan, Roman, or Jewish, man or woman, that we were all equally image bearers of God. And while we hear that over and over again, that idea itself is antithetical to slavery. Because for slavery to last for very long, you have to imbibe the idea that you are better than the person that you own. You have to believe deep down inside that somehow you are deserving of owning this person. It's why race-based, that's why slavery in the South had to be race-based. Because unless you believed that the people that you were enslaved were somehow less than you, you couldn't square it with liberty and freedom. So the Bible introduced the universal, mankind, the universal brotherhood of mankind, and it introduced the idea that we were to love our neighbor as ourself, and that our love of our neighbor was akin to our love of God. And while those two ideas spread slowly, and were ineffective at first. 
They were like a cancer in the heart of slave-holding philosophy that ended up upturning an entire way of life. So if the New Testament authors are not defending slavery, what are, what are they doing? These men, all of whom are in prison or soon to be in prison, are concentrating on the godly response of believers to mistreatment. He reminds them of two critical principles. The first critical principle is that you are not suffering for the gospel if you are suffering for your own sin. This is something Peter's going to say over and over again, right? If you're acting stupid and you get hit, you're not being persecuted. You're suffering the consequences of your actions. Okay? If you speed and you get pulled over, you're not being persecuted, you're being punished. If you're at work and you're stealing pens and selling them at the flea market and you get fired, you're not being persecuted for your faith. Okay? If you spend hours and hours every day making photocopies of the flyers for your kid's softball team and then you get in trouble, you're not being persecuted. You're being rightly punished for wasting the company's time. So people who are punished for sin are not suffering for God, they're suffering for sin. But for those Christians that are suffering when they have done good, they will be, they will be rewarded for responding to hate with love and suffering with endurance. Christians who respond well will be doing gracious or commendable deeds. These are things that bring glory to God. But the word that he uses here, the kind of idea that he's using, is these are the kinds of things that God rewards us for. When we do gracious acts, we store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. That's the model. We see that all through the New Testament. If you do the things that God has called you to do, there are rewards that are being given to you. The problem is that often we don't see them because they're being stored up for us in heaven. It is so much easier to store up for ourselves the little bit of ego boost that we get for sticking it to the man instead of suffering injustice in a way that brings glory to God. This is the imperishable inheritance that Peter talks about in chapter 1. It is the great house that Paul says we're building out of precious things that won't be burned up. This is true for slaves and it's true for all Christians as well. Peter is telling his readers that the way that they treat their oppressors will bring glory to God and rewards to them. And so Christians, we are supposed to respond to injustice and oppression with endurance and respect. Now, we need to be really careful when we say something like that. Because it is really easy to use these kind of verses and this kind of language to justify our oppression of other people. So understand what Peter's not saying. He's not saying, hey, slave owner, it's great that you own slaves. Keep up the good work. No. 
Your, your judgment's coming. Right? We, we know that because in the Old Testament, God's very clear. People who steal other human beings and sell them, the punishment is death. We know that because in Joel, what does is, what is Joel say that God desires? He desires that you do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. At no point in here is the Bible saying it's great for you to own slaves. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to not turn to the Bible and use it as an excuse for us to oppress the people around us. If you're an employer, you don't look at this and say, man, I can treat my employees any way I want to. No. You need to be that good boss. You need to be the guy that treats, that, that allows his workers to see Christ in him or her. We've got to be very careful about the way that we read this. This passage is not something for us to tell others to do as a way to remove our responsibility. It's a way for us to interact when we feel oppressed and done poorly by the people that are in authority over us. And we do this for a very significant reason. It is not to change our society. Peter is not telling his people, you should suffer in silence so that society will change. He's not telling them that they should suffer in silence because they deserve it. Or because there's somehow nobility in it. No, they are told to suffer under oppression for one critical reason. Because it brings glory to God. Well, how? The last passage in our section tells us that. He says, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When we suffer, when we accept that which we do not deserve, when we return mercy for anger and love for hate, we mirror the Lord who saved us. He's not laying out liberation theology. He's not telling us to tear down the patriarchy. He's not telling us to be rebels who rage against the machine. He's calling us to be suffering servants who follow in the footsteps of our Savior when we suffer injustice and show mercy. This is the philosophy that Jesus taught, and it is the philosophy that Jesus lived. Jesus was punished unjustly, and he didn't speak out. Jesus didn't strike back when he was hated, and he didn't hate in return. Jesus suffered, and he didn't come back and take revenge. In fact, he asked God to forgive the people who were torturing him. That's our Savior. That's our boss. That's the one we're supposed to follow. But he did all these things for a reason. He wasn't just a powerless victim who was too weak to escape. He didn't submit to this stuff because he had some kind of Stockholm Syndrome where he felt like he deserved it. He suffered gross injustice for a very good reason. He was redeeming the people who were hurting him. He was working for the good of those who were enslaving him. He was unjustly punished so that he could take our sins on himself. 
If he doesn't do that, none of us get to go to heaven. If he doesn't give us who do not deserve anything, his righteousness, then we don't get to have a relationship with God. Brothers and sisters, we have to have that at the center of our life or we will never, never stand up to oppression well. If you do not know in your heart that the grace of God came to you as a free gift, you will rage against everything. Your entire life will become one long effort to come out on top. Because see, that, that's the fundamental reality here, guys. If you don't fix your passions, if you don't fix what's driving you, you will never overcome oppression. Do you know why? Because you will either rage impotently under the oppression of others or you will gain power so you can turn around and oppress the other people. See, if your heart doesn't change, you will either be the oppressor or the oppressed, but you will never be the redeemed. God didn't come so that we could be oppressor or oppressed. He came so that we could be the redeemed. So that every suffering that we endure, we endure for the purposes of the gospel. So that other people would know and understand and see the Jesus that saved us. Brothers and sisters, we live out our lives telling a story of redemption and grace. We suffer, but we suffer for a purpose. And so Peter wants his readers to understand that their suffering will advance the cause of the gospel. Oh, brothers and sisters, we have to learn how to crucify our passions so that we can view injustice So we can see it as an opportunity to live out the gospel and reflect the nature of the work of Christ around us. He wants wants us to glorify God by responding well to hard masters. That's what he's telling his people and that's what he's telling us. Brothers and sisters, Christians should glorify God by living well even when our jobs are hard and our bosses are jerks. See, that's the great connection here. While slavery is still alive and well in the world, we generally don't have it in the West. In those places where Christians have created laws, where Christianity has driven the world and our philosophy, we generally don't have outright slavery. But you know what all of us have? We all have masters. Everybody's got a master here. When you go into work, you have a master. You have somebody who's telling you what to do and how to do it. Even if you own your own company, you got masters. They're called shareholders, stockholders, or customers. We all serve someone. And what this passage is telling us is that we should use the opportunity of work or service to bring glory to God through diligent service. Think about the examples that we have in Scripture of Daniel, of Joseph, these men who served oppressive regimes, people that were attacking them, people that were using them. They served them so well that they gained influence and were able to enlarge the kingdom. 
We should glorify God by serving well. Now listen, that doesn't mean that we bow down and grovel. But it does mean that as Christians, we should be the best employees that our bosses have ever had. And I'm going to tell you, I haven't done a good job of that. I've had some hard bosses. And I wish that I could tell you that I was a model employee that never got back at him, but I did. And I'm telling you, all of us should be honest in our dealings with our bosses, our customers, our suppliers. We shouldn't steal our pay by wasting our time at work. They pay us for eight hours of work. We need to do eight hours of work. An employer should never have a better employee than a Christian. Being fired all day because you spent your day reading the Bible is not you being persecuted. Because you've known that guy, right? The one who could never be called on to do anything because he was too busy reading his Bible? Yeah, that's not being persecuted for the faith. We should do our jobs well and we should glorify God by responding gracefully to the unjust or abusive employers. Guys, I run into all the time people that come to me and they say, how can I, I'm so frustrated, I, I hate my job. I, but I, I, they'll say something like, oh, I want to be a pastor because you get to do God stuff as your job. And I'm like, no, that's not what being a pastor is. There's, there's lots of good things about being a pastor. But God isn't calling everybody to be employed in a religious space. He's calling most of us to be employed in places where our life and our example can affect the people around us. So if you are struggling right now in the workplace, right? if you are wrestling with, does my life have meaning? How, how can I do these things in this, in this place where everybody is secular? Realize that your job is to provide an example of Christ to the people around you, that you have been placed in a, in a land of lost people. That you have been placed in direct contact with the lost and God is giving you a mission field in that place. Your nobility comes from doing your job well to reflect the glory of the one who saved you. This is the critical reality for all of us in the workforce that we may suffer under bad bosses and in bad situations, but we do it for the glory of God. So that on the day of visitation, on the day of judgment, when, when Christ comes, and, and interesting, we talk about that day of visitation, that day of judgment, everybody has one, and sometimes it's the day that Christ begins to move in your life. That day when, when the reality of the gospel comes true and that, that employer can look and say, I came to Christ, and your example of what Christ was, was instrumental in that. Oh, that all of us would be in that place. That we would share the gospel with the people around us by the way that we interact with difficult bosses. That is a graceful activity and one that brings glory to God. Y'all pray with me. Dear Lord, God, I pray and I ask that everyone here would take seriously their role in the workforce. That they would glorify you in everything that they do.
and especially in the way that they deal with difficult, abusive, or unfair bosses. God, that you would give them the strength and the wisdom to reflect God's glory to lost people, especially ones that are in charge. God, we ask these things in your holy name. Amen.